North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Hello, listeners. This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President for Asia and Career Chair at CSIS. Normally, I am one of the uh, protagonists on the Impossible State podcast, but today I'm subbing in for Andrew Schwartz, our Senior Vice President uh, at CSIS, as the host of the Impossible State. And I'm very happy to say that today on the Impossible State, we have Nick Sencheni. Nick is, for any of you who know anything about CSIS, Nick is an institution at CSIS. He's been with CSIS even when we were back in on K Street, in 1800 K Street. Nick is a senior fellow with the Japan Chair, and he is also now Deputy Director for Asia at CSIS. His work focuses on uh, Japan and U.S. Japan relations, but also more broadly on the region. Some of you may not know this, but prior to joining CSIS in 2005, he was a news producer for Fuji Television in Washington, D.C., where he was covering U.S. policy in Asia, as well as the domestic politics uh, in the United States. He holds an MA in International Economics and Japan Studies from SAIS, Johns Hopkins. Uh, pity it wasn't Georgetown, but we'll accept that. And a BA in Asian Studies from Connecticut College. And so we're happy to have Nick on The Impossible State, where we will talk about Japan and uh, Japan-Korea relations. So Nick, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Victor. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess where we should we might want to start is talk about one of the biggest, most unexpected and tragic events that we've seen. I would say not just Asian politics, but world politics, and that was the death of Foreign Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Very tragic, very unexpected. I mean, I guess for you know our listeners, most of the work that we do on the impossible state surrounds the Korean Peninsula, but his Death has all sorts of implications, but might we first start with the implications in Japan for Japanese domestic politics and particularly for the Kishida administration? Sure, happy to do that. I'll talk about foreign policy for a little bit and then maybe domestic political situation and, and the issues that Prime Minister Kishida is currently facing. Clearly, former Prime Minister Abe's assassination was, was a great shock to the people of Japan, but also to the international community. And I think that's mainly because Abe succeeded in laying out a blueprint for a Japanese strategy that I think we're going to see for many years to come. Future leaders, including the current leader, Kishida, will put their own stamp on it. But I think it's so pragmatic that we're going to see consistency in, in Japan's foreign policy trajectory because of Abe's efforts. And fundamentally, it's about strengthening the Japanese economy, economic power, strengthening Japan's defense capabilities, 
partnering more closely with the United States and networking with other like-minded countries regionally and globally to maintain the international order. And he captured all of these objectives in what's known as uh, the Free and Open Indo-Pacific or FOIP strategy. And it's very compelling to the point where the US, Australia, other countries in Asia, and even partners in Europe have developed their own Free and Indo-Pacific strategies under which uh, we can coordinate various initiatives aimed at maintaining stability and prosperity in, in the Indo-Pacific. So I think FOIP is here to stay, and, and Prime Minister Kishida is going to carry this forward. But he's always already introduced some, some issues that are very important to him. Uh, I would point to the speech he gave at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore this past June, where he introduced what he calls a vision for peace with five pillars. Some of the pillars are very consistent with, with Abe's strategy, and then he introduced some priorities of his own. So those pillars, very briefly, maintaining a rules-based international order, the security piece I just described, but then three things that, that Kishida is going to focus on, a world without nuclear weapons, aspirational to be sure, but Kishida hails from Hiroshima and is therefore very committed to nuclear nonproliferation and ultimately a world without nuclear weapons. Uh, UN reform, Japan is very committed to international institutions and wants to refocus on the United Nations in that context. And then economic security, protecting sensitive technologies, maintaining supply chain resiliency, which is a national objective, but clearly an issue that Japan can coordinate with, with other countries. And earlier this year, legislation was passed in Japan related to this theme, and it's already animating dialogue with the US and, and others. Three issues to watch on, on foreign policy under Kishida connected to, to former Prime Minister Abe's legacy. The first is China strategy. Abe successfully managed to balance deterrence with interaction vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. When coercive pressure around the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea first started 10 years ago now, Abe's response was one of strength. And he doubled down on Japan's defense and strengthening the U.S.-Japan alliance. And I think that had a big impact. But he never shied away from opportunities to interact with Beijing to try to stabilize that relationship. That's consistent with U.S.-China strategy, in my view. But Japan is very good at nuance and managing this delicate balance. So the question is, will, will Kishida be able to do that similarly? And he has an opportunity coming up the end of September with the 50th anniversary of Japan-China diplomatic relations. So Japan-China relations is one to watch. Another one is Russia. This, in my view, was, was maybe a blind spot in, in Abe's strategy. He engaged Putin very closely, in part to get Russia to return so-called northern territories. That didn't come to fruition, of course. Kishida, in contrast, has taken a much harsher stance vis-a-vis -vis Russia in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, very forward-leading in, in that regard and, and joining closely with the U.S. and the G7, still maintaining energy cooperation with Russia, but still much harsher than, than Abe. And the other one is the relationship with South Korea, which was complicated under Abe due to historical sensitivities and other issues you, you know well but one that's increasingly important given how complex the security environment around Japan and Korea has, has become. We can talk about this a little more, but you know we are seeing some more bilateral coordination between Japan and South Korea. Biden administration has invested a lot of energy in trilateral coordination, which is progressing nicely. My sense is that Japan-Korea relations step-by-step step, incrementally could improve, but I think Japan's approach is going to be one of caution, understanding its strategic importance, but taking this step by step. So continuity in foreign policy, thanks to the blueprint 
Abe laid out, but Kishida is, is going to try to put his own imprint on foreign policy, but, but largely consistent with Abe's vision. Very quickly, just where things stand for Kishida domestically, he's won two election victories since he uh, became prime minister. So arguably that creates a window of political stability for him. He doesn't have to face another national election for, for a few years. And coming off his most recent victory in the upper house election, which took place right after Abe's tragic assassination, his approval rating was quite high. That has since dipped a little bit. It's down to about 50% on average due to mainly three issues. One is the understanding or revelation that many lawmakers in the ruling liberal Democratic Party have had contact with the former Unification Church. And this connects to the assassination of Abe in the sense that the suspect complained that his mother blew all of the family savings by donating it to the former Unification Church, which has been very active in Japan over the decades. And generally speaking, in the Japanese public has, has suspicion of the Unification Church. And so his approval rating took a hit because of this. He vowed to cut ties with the Unification Church. Just today, it was revealed that almost half of LDP lawmakers have had some kind of contact with the former Unification Church. But Kishida has stepped out and said this will end because um, this is now the primary narrative in in. Japanese domestic politics. So that's an issue. Some members of the public are, are critical of his decision to hold a state funeral for former Prime Minister Abe, which will take place on September 27th. In that context, he's unveiled uh, the budget for the funeral and is trying to address that as well. And then there's also been a, a little spike in, in COVID. And as we know, for any political leader, that's, that's a challenge. Fundamentally, still in very good shape. But I think going forward, in addition to the foreign policy agenda, I think observers will be watching closely what he does domestically on, on economic strategy and, and other issues, and also on defense, which is going to really dominate the policy debate from now until till the end of this year. So I want to ask you about defense reform, but before I do, just a couple of thoughts on that really great laydown of, of the overall situation and the challenges. I mean, first, going back to sort of the legacy of Abe, I mean, I think you described it very well, and I, and I think we both remember it very well. It was sort of encapsulated in the speech that he gave at CSIS when we were back at 1800 K Street, where, you know, he took up the challenge posed by Rich Armitage and others about whether would, Japan would recede to being a second-rate power in which he declared Japan would not be a second-rate power. And so the way you described it, it was all sort of enveloped in this notion of Japan being a global citizen and a, and a proactive supporter of the liberal international order. So we think about Yoshida Shigeru's legacy on Japanese foreign policy. And I don't know Japan as well as you do, but to me, like there's no other legacy I can think of on Japanese foreign policy after Yoshida Shigeru except Shinzo Abe. But then the other aspect of it, which you discussed, which was, I think, equally important, was that he also really tried to end a war for Japan. You know, whether it was Hiroshima, the visit to Hiroshima, the speech at the Australian Parliament, the U.S. Congress, the Comfort Women Agreement, he really tried to end the war, at least in the minds of Japanese, as well as victims of Japanese aggression in the past. And not successfully in the Korean case, as we saw later on, but still that was that I think is another one of his, his legacies that I think are quite profound. On defense reform, could you say a little bit more about what are sort of the issues of, of debate now, discussion, what is Kishida looking to do that's similar to ideas that Abe had going forward and to what extent they're different? You know, these issues clearly are important, not just for Japan, but for the US and Korea as well. 
Well, I would go back to when uh, Kishida entered the race to become prime minister almost a year ago now. And he was very forward-leaning in terms of increasing Japan's defense spending. But he also said repeatedly that Japan would consider all means necessary to strengthen its defense capabilities and defend the nation. And I think that's extremely important because he served as foreign minister under Abe. But accurate or not, there was sort of a perception that he was a little more dovish on on national security issues. But he put that to rest very quickly by sort of taking over the debate on defense strategy. The ruling Liberal Democratic Party announced a pledge to increase defense spending to 2% of GDP in five years, which he endorsed without hesitation. And right now, the government, in coordination with, with outside experts who are offering advice, is preparing three key strategic documents due at the end of this year that will lay out the blueprint for Japan's uh, national security and defense strategy going forward. Again, going back to Abe, the first is updating Japan's national security strategy to account for changes in the regional and global security environment. Under Abe, in 2013, uh, the Japanese government announced its first ever national security strategy. The principles are as I described earlier, strengthening the economy, strengthening defense, U.S.-Japan, and partnering with like-minded countries um, to, to be very succinct. So Kishida now gets a chance to build on that legacy by updating that document and also articulating priorities for for Japan's national security. So that's fundamental. Attendant to that, you'll have a new defense strategy and also a new uh, defense procurement budget, which uh, is extremely significant in the context of this push to increase defense spending. Several issues prevailing in this debate so far capabilities in uh, the space and cyber domains, missile defense, counter-strike capability, and fundamentally furthering the capacity to defend the Southwest or or what's referred to as the Nansei island chain, given coercive pressure from China. So this debate, too, is about strengthening Japan's own capabilities. There are questions about resourcing and what kind of priorities Japan is going to set. Kishida's at the helm. And, and he's going to have an important role to play in determining how Japan establishes its defense priorities going forward. I think alliance networking will also feature in the national security strategy and in the defense strategy. Question is, how much will U.S.-Japan-Korea cooperation feature in that context? I think it's critically important, and we'll just have to see. So we're in a situation where sort of the fundamental tenets of Abe's strategy are still in place, but Kishida, as one of his successors, has to manage this very robust debate in an environment where uh, the security challenges that Japan faces are very complex. And so he's going to have a big imprint on these strategies that will be laid out at the end of this year. The electoral path on this is clear, right? I mean, he's, he's sort of cleared all those hurdles. I guess the question is, what would be the counterarguments? What's the counter to sort of this agenda? And, you know, is it coming from the opposition or their defense intellectuals that say, you know, we should be focusing on other things? Sort of what's the counter arguments to this? Well, uh, the political opposition in Japan is fractured uh, and very weak and for several years has not been able to coalesce around a cohesive agenda that would present a compelling alternative to what the ruling coalition led by the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, has, has put forward. 
So you'll see the opposition question this. You might see counter arguments suggesting that this debate perhaps is taking Japan too much in a direction of offensive military capability, which is inconsistent with Japan's traditional focus on homeland defense, protecting the homeland. Those types of arguments might emerge. You might see arguments about defense spending being inefficient and scrutinizing those defense allocations. Those things will pop up. But I think broadly, there's a consensus that Japan has no choice but to take on this project in the face of an increasingly belligerent North Korea and coercive pressure from China very close to Japan, which is on the front line of, uh, of these challenges. So I think you'll see a lot of debate about priorities and what Japan should focus on in the near term, midterm, and the long term. And exactly what Japan wants to accomplish with respect to defense cooperation with the US and, and other countries. But I don't see a compelling counterargument to this narrative because it's quite obvious that Japan is, is facing some grave security challenges and the Japanese public is keenly aware of them. And so, you know, there'll be a robust debate. I think you'll see some differences on priorities, but I don't see a counterargument that would derail this strategy or this trajectory in any way. Let's, let's shift to topics that are related to, but in a different frame. As you know well, this is the 20th anniversary of the trip that Prime Minister Koizumi took to North Korea, uh, which then led to something called the Pyongyang Declaration. 20 years. Uh, it's hard to believe that, that it just seems like it was yesterday, but 20 years. And there's a lot of talk, I know, in Japan now about this 20-year anniversary. Maybe first you could explain to our listeners, like, what was the significance of that for Koizumi, for Japan, and uh, where do things stand now in terms of this declaration? Is it still even relevant anymore? Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, well, that was a remarkable chapter in, in Japanese foreign policy when Koizumi went to North Korea. And, you know, if you read the Pyongyang Declaration, Japan essentially offered a vision of, of normalization of relations and a substantial amount of economic aid if North Korea would, would get serious about the threats that it posed and uh, human rights issues, specifically the issue related to Japanese citizens who were abducted by North Korea in, in the 1970s and, and 80s. This also ties back to Shinzo Abe, who uh, was personally committed to the abductee issue, especially because he was serving as Koizumi's deputy cabinet secretary at the time and was there and, and witnessed this firsthand. It was remarkable that Koizumi made that offer, a very bold offer, but it had some very clear conditions. And that vision of, of normalization and substantial aid for the future ec economic development of North Korea has not been realized for, for obvious reasons. But quickly, for those who might not be so familiar with the abductee issue, the government of Japan has uh, determined that 17 Japanese citizens were abducted by North Korea. As a result of Koizumi's visit, uh, five were, were released and were able to return to Japan. North Korea argues that four were not abductive and said that the remaining eight had passed away. But Japan is unconvinced of this. There was a, a, an episode you might remember where North Korea supposedly sent remains to Japan and Japan conducted an examination and determined that that was not the case. So not a lot of trust at all um, in, in terms of what North Korea said about this. And importantly, the government of Japan has several hundred, more than 800 investigations where abduction can't be ruled out. 
And so this is a fundamental human rights issue for Japan, and by extension, should be a very important issue for the United States. And, and successive U.S. administrations have uh, supported Japan on the abductee issue, most recently President Biden when, when he visited Japan in, in May. Interestingly, there's a U.S.-Japan context to the abductee issue and Koizumi's visit, which I experienced personally. You referenced my previous job with, with Fuji Television, so I was working for them at the time when Koizumi made this visit and when it became known that these abductees existed. And it was determined that an American named Charles Jenkins, who was in the U.S. military, defected to North Korea in 1965, had married one of the Japanese abductees, whose name was uh, Hitomi Soga. So on that day, when Koizumi visited Pyongyang, I was assigned to drive to North Carolina and find Charles Jenkins' relatives and interview them for, for Japanese television. So that was sort of an introduction for me to... Did you find Eventually we did, yes. But that experience really led me to be personally connected to this issue. And, and I am very concerned that the issue of North Korean human rights doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. And I'm hopeful that the US, Japan, and, and others can continue bringing attention to this issue going forward. But to sum up the sort of impact of the Koizumi visit and the Pyongyang Declaration, Japan's North Korea policy has remained very consistent. Get rid of the nuclear weapons, get rid of the ballistic missile programs, uh, address human rights, the abductee issue, and then we'll talk. And in the meantime, we're going to focus on nonproliferation initiatives such as the PSI, the, the Proliferation Security Initiative, come to mind and work with the international community so that people don't forget about how multidimensional this, this North Korea challenge is. And I think Kishida is going to press on. He's, he's uh, vowed to, to keep working on behalf of the the abductee families, and I would not expect uh, any changes in Japanese North Korea policy. So I too have a personal connection to this particular issue because when I was in the government, the president invited uh, the parents of Megumi Yokota to the White House. And it was in the context of a broader discussion about North Korean human rights abuses, as you referenced earlier. And so there were other North Korean defectors in the room too, but Mrs. Yokota came in with a picture of her daughter, right? And it was just a very moving moment because you could see the president was actually quite moved by the whole thing. He saw it from a very human level, like here was a mom who, who never saw her daughter again. And it was something that was a big part of, at least during the President Bush's time in office, a big part of the policy. I think, you know, one, because it was important to Japan, right? And I think, in, and as an ally, you support it too, because it was a broader human rights issue, right? And then three, because it was intimately linked to the denuclearization issue. The Pyongyang Declaration, the Pyongyang Declaration in and of itself was not just, it was negotiated between Japan and DPRK, but it was not just freestanding in the sense that the fruits of that declaration would feed directly into any denuclearization deal right, in terms of um, what was required of North Korea, but also what Japan would be willing to give as a quid pro quo for getting these things on denuclearization, ballistic missiles, and, and human rights. So the two are very related. I mean, I guess that, you know, the downside is it's 20 years later and we're no place, uh, we're no place on this. The upside is that there's a framework, right? There's a framework there if there's ever an opportunity. And that leads to my next question, which is, so... So it, you said Japan is, you know, a place where there's a lot of nuance. What's the nuance between 
Abe's legacy and Kishida on this issue? Or is there is there any is there any difference in the way they look at the, you know, one of the stories we often heard on the Korean side was that, uh, you know, even even after Abe left office, he was sort of the hard line, like making it very difficult for any Japanese leader or politician to talk about anything with regard to North Korea that did not start with the abductee issue. So is that do you think that's still the case, or you know, has Abe's passing from the scene changed that at all? Well, I would expect a, a great deal of of consistency with respect to Kishida's approach to this issue. Yes, uh, Abe championed the abductee issue, uh, and conservatives in Japan, of course, are very committed to it. But I think there's there's a broader consensus in Japan about how important this is. So I I don't foresee Kishida or or any other leader taking a dramatically different approach. You know, if there are opportunities to interact with North Korea, such as Koizumi did in 2002, I don't think Japan would necessarily rule them out. But I don't think Japan is going to back down on these three conditions, nor should they. You know, North Korea's human rights abuses are outrageous. um, And I think Japan is right um, to keep focusing on that issue. Uh, so I, I would expect um, nothing but, but consistency on, on this front. Yeah. I mean, but even Abe at the end of his time in office, you know, I think this is consistent too, still held very firmly on the abduction issue, but at the same time also signaled he was willing to talk, right? He was willing to talk to Kim Jong-un at one point, even without conditions, right? That he was willing will, willing to talk. So, you know, the template I think for and this is one that also Japan helped to establish a template on dealing with North Korea, as the Japanese always used to like to say, is dialogue and pressure, right? Dialogue and pressure. And so that probably will be the case for, for Kishida as well. I mean, we're at a point now where the North Koreans are not interested in talking to anybody. So it almost is a moot, is, is a moot question, but still, there, you know, there may be an opportunity in the future. Let's shift to the last topic in the remaining time that we have left, and that is something you referenced earlier on in the initial interventions, and that's Japan-South Korea and trilateral relations. You know, we saw the summit trilateral at, on the sidelines of the NATO summit in Madrid, where Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand were all invited to come, and there was a trilateral among the U.S., Japan, and, and South Korea. First one in five years, I think it was. And... So Kishida has certainly been more forward-leaning and proactive in trying to send a signal. But I think, you know, we would be, we wouldn't be on frank if we didn't say that there's a lot of damage that has been done to this relationship. And it's I I don't think it's just political in the sense that, you know, there there are agreements that have been walked away from and other sorts of things. But to me, the biggest change in all of this. Uh, because yes, the Koreans always get angry about history with Japan, and yes, there's always friction in the relationship. But it seems to me the biggest sea change in all of this has been, you know, over the five or so years where the relationship really got bad. There's been a change in the way the Japanese public just looks at uh, the relationship with South Korea, and you know, politicians can change. They often do change positions depending on, you know, what their leadership says. But 
the public opinion is is one that really is seems to be much more deeply entrenched. So I just wanted to get your as someone who follows Japan, studies Japan, how deeply entrenched are these Japanese public views on on relations with Korea, and are they movable at all? Well, certainly in the past several years, Japanese public views of of Korea have have not been strong. Um, similar views on on China, but I think the trend line is improving. There's an organization in Japan, Genron MPO, which together with uh, the East Asia Institute in in Korea, recently released a poll uh, on Japan-Korea relations, public opinion poll. And it showed that views of the other country among both populations is improving. Not best buddies, but also not ice cold. Negative feelings towards the other country dropped in both Japan and Korea. And encouraging for me, looking at that polling data, was a recognition in both countries that Japan-Korea relations is important. And so I think that's an encouraging foundation on which um, the two governments can build, uh, on which the U.S. government can build in coordination with our Korean and Japanese allies, and on which the two countries, Japan and Korea, can work creatively in reestablishing connections, which get to the, the fundamental point you raised, Victor, which is trust. We've lost it in Japan-Korea relations. How, we, how do we reestablish it? Political dialogue, of course, and that kind of diplomacy is, is critical. But there are multiple avenues in which Japan-Korea ties can be, can be strengthened. One important element of this is the business community. The Japan Business Federation, Kidanren, sent a delegation to, to South Korea um, earlier this summer. Parliamentary exchange is often a very important vehicle. Student exchange. And then you have cultural dimensions which traditionally in, in recent years contributed to, to positive views of Korea and Japan and, and, and of Japan and, and Korea. So, you know, we can't ignore the, the, the sensitive issues that are complicating Japan-Korea relations, but that doesn't mean that we can't think creatively about ways to, to maintain a more positive trend line. And I see some evidence that that, that might be the case, and that's somewhat encouraging. I agree. I mean, I think the the business sectors really do want to see an improvement in relations. They want to see uh, see the relationship move forward and certainly improve it from where it's been. And I think we're we're seeing more of that. I mean, we got the initial signals from the leadership, like Kishida and President Yun, but now we're seeing it in these parliamentary delegations. We actually hosted one at CSIS, a trilateral group of both diet members as well as National Assembly members um, as part of a State Department visitors program. So I think that's good. I mean, you know, one one agent that isn't helpful in all this, frankly, is the press on both sides, where uh, they know that uh, good news doesn't really sell well. I mean, you're a former journalist, so it's always the bad news that sells better. But as you referenced earlier on, there's a lot of stuff that they need to be working together on, right? Whether it's supply chains or, you know, the, the, the implications of Ukraine for Taiwan or North Korea foremost. There's many issues that the, 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 the two, the three allies could be working on. A lot of homework, I think, for all, for all sides. At the worst end of things, if none of those things are incentive enough, 
you can always count on North Korea doing something bad that gives them a reason to have to work together, even if they don't want to work together. And unfortunately, that's, you know, unfortunately, that's the case. But I would agree with you. I think that already in the past few months, we've seen, you know, and it's an improvement. It's not by leaps and bounds, but it seems to be steadily moving in the right direction. And that's that's what we that's what we want to see going forward. So, yeah, and I think the U.S. can play a very constructive role in identifying those avenues where we can coordinate and cooperate. And fundamentally, it, it just gets to the interests that we share, including on North Korean human rights. You'll recall that you know back in 2016, our two programs, the Japan Chair and the Korea Chair at CSIS, hosted an event with the U.S., Japanese, and South Korean ambassadors on human rights. Yes, yes, I remember that well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there are examples you can turn to um, that remind us of our shared interests and and how we can facilitate that process of coordination, which over the long term will get us back to that sense of trust between Japan and Korea, um, which which will lead to even more robust cooperation going forward. Idealistic, yes. Timetable, uncertain. But this is fundamentally in in U.S. interests, and I think Japan and Korea recognize that also. Yeah, and the last point is that I I agree, and I think the and that point about the U.S. playing a facilitating role is very important, right? The United States it doesn't have to be strong arm the allies, but it has to play some role quietly behind the scenes to try to help keep things on track. For those who don't believe that thesis, all you have to do is look at the past five years where you know, frankly, the U.S. was absent on this thing, and uh, it got, you know, it just spiraled out of control to the point where it potentially was hurting U.S. interests, right? Whether it was on intelligence sharing or some of these other issues, we saw it actually, the dysfunction actually harming U.S. interests. So there's every reason, and and you and I know this is not something that we're advocating that the Biden administration doesn't already know. They've been quite committed to this, uh, both at the White House, at the uh, at the NSC, at the State Department, and in DOD, and in other places. So, um, so that's all. That's all for the good. Um, so, Nick, really, thank you very much for joining us on the Impossible State. It's been a real, real pleasure. Um, Nick Sanchaney, who is the senior fellow in the Japan Chair and deputy director for Asia at CSIS. So, thank you to our listeners, and we will be with you on the next episode of the Impossible State. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate@csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.